In the first half of the 20th century, the literary scene was dominated by now-revered authors whose books have since become classics. It reads like a roll call of greats. Ernest Hemingway, Marcel Proust, George Orwell, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, J.R. Tolkien, and of course, Virginia Woolf, to name a few. Their books need no explanation. Perhaps it's understandable then why these texts are staples on school curriculums, are continually analysed in academia and, of course, turned into theatre shows and blockbuster motion pictures. With a juggernaut of status behind them, these authors have outgrown their living credibility and become much bigger personalities since death. Time allows for such reverence, but with it, fresh criticism of the words and the writers. As revered as they are, them and many of their contemporaries don't come without their problems. In today's woke world, where council culture leaves no stone unturned, many of our famed musicians, scholars, artists and writers face fresh evaluation for the things they said or did when they were alive. Virginia Woolf is the latest in this canon to come under fire. She famously and publicly wore blackface in 1910 when impersonating the Emperor of Abyssinia and boarded the Royal Navy battleship HMS Dreadnought. In February 2022, Camden Council in London announced that its statue of Virginia Woolf, situated outside the author's former home in Bloomsbury Park, was being reviewed and potentially removed. Woolf's bronze bust had been added to a list of monuments in the borough, including Mahatma Gandhi, Karl Marx and Matthew Flinders, which, following the toppling of the Edward Colston statue in Bristol, are deemed problematic, citing reasons of racism, links to slavery or colonialism, and considered inappropriate and insensitive for today's climate. Virginia Woolf is in danger of being cancelled for her appropriation of black masculinity. Woolf may be cherished and respected as one of England's greatest prose writers, but will this reputation save her? Let's find out. Welcome to Cancelled. I'm your host, Leah, and this is the show where we look back at some of the biggest and most bizarre attempts to cancel people, corporations, and even countries. You may think the subjects of our very rigorous and academic study deserve public disdain. You may think it's all a gross injustice, but it doesn't matter, because all of them were judged in the court of public opinion and ultimately cancelled. Virginia Woolf is regarded as one of England's most prominent female writers of the last century. She was born in South Kensington in 1882, the seventh child of Julia Princip Jackson, herself a famous pre-Raphaelite model, and the author and historian Sir Leslie Stephen. Woolf's sister was the painter Vanessa Bell, and many of her other siblings entered into careers around publishing or psychoanalytics. Woolf, who was encouraged to write by her father, began writing professionally in 1900. Following his death in 1904, the family relocated from South Kent to Bloomsbury, then a bohemian quarter of London full of artists and writers. The early 1900s were considered golden years for the arts, with the Roaring Twenties in full swing from Berlin, Paris, New York and London. Shortly after Wolf's relocation, alongside her brothers, they formed the Bloomsbury Set, a group of poets, writers, artists and thinkers. The group were active during the Edwardian period and up to the beginning of World War I. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Now considered culturally and significantly relevant for their input into publishing in the arts, the Bloomsbury set started out with humble beginnings, meeting in their townhouses and country retreats. Aside from the Wolf Bell contingent, other members of the group were from wealthy, affluent backgrounds. Many of them were educated at Cambridge University. Despite this, the group had progressive views about sexuality and rejected the austere strictness of Victorian society. Their left-leaning political views and rejection of convention centered the importance of personal relationships and private life, as well as an aesthetic appreciation. Some members of the group's interpersonal connections included affairs, with many becoming entangled in same-sex relationships. Wolf, although not publicly declaring herself a lesbian or bisexual, had long relationships with many men and women, most notably another member of the group, Vita Sackville-West, herself an author. Vita inspired one of Wolfe's most well-known and accessible novels, Orlando, which is said to be a love letter to her lover. It was made famous in the 1992 film when Tilda Swinton played Orlando, the sex-changing, time-traveling protagonist. As such, the text is relevant within gender studies and feminist theory academia. It may seem strange then, given that Wolfe and the group were leading figures in culturally significant works, plus having progressive left-leaning views, that they donned blackface and impersonated the emperor of Abyssinia and his entourage. In a bid to understand and not excuse this action, we need to look at the situation with closer inspection. The performative prank, because it was staged as such and prepared in advance, happened in 1910. It is now officially known as the Dreadnought Hoax. Wolf, alongside her brother, Adrian Stephen, the artist, Duncan Grant, Guy Ridley, later awarded a CBE, Anthony Buxton and Horace Devere Cole were all involved. Horace Devere Cole studied with Wolf's brother, Adrian, at Cambridge. Cole was from a wealthy Irish family who made their fortune in Quinine and had served in the Second Boer War with the Yorkshire Hussars. Due to injury, he left the army and returned to the UK, where he started university and his reputation as a hoaxer began. Cole executed a series of bold jokes and escapades, principally aimed at deflating pompous figures of authority. He targeted members of parliament, city businessmen, and naval officers. It's worth mentioning that the Dreadnought hoax was a continuation of an earlier hoax in 1905 by Cole and Stephen called the Cambridge Zanzibar hoax, which, as you may imagine, also included blackface. For this hoax, five men, four of which impersonated persons of Zanzibar, including the Sultan, dressed in robes, cloth head coverings, darkened their skin and wore fake beards. Cole and his crew had wanted to see if they could get away with pretending to be the Sultan, which they did. After a private reception with the mayor of Cambridge and town clerk, they were given a private tour of some of the university buildings and the city. The next day, Cole gave an interview with the Daily Mail about the hoax, which was inspired by the 8th Sultan of Zanzibar, Saeed al-Bin Hamoud al-Basid's official state visit to England. Back to the Dreadnought hoax in 1910. From 1907 to 1911, the Dreadnought was the flagship of the Royal Navy's fleet. Powered by steam turbines, the battleship was the fastest of its time. It was an iconic supervessel. 
armed for war, a floating representation of firepower and the British Empire. When the ship visited London in 1909, a million people were said to have watched its arrival. Jumping ahead to 1940, Wolfe gave a speech at Rodmell's Women's Institute in London in which she reflected on the reason behind the hoax. Wolfe is quoted as saying this, The officers of the Hawk, another HMS ship, and the Dreadnought had a feud, and Cole's friend who was on the Hawk had come to Cole and said to him, You're a great hand at hoaxing people. Couldn't you do something to pull the leg of the Dreadnought? They want taking down a bit. Couldn't you manage to play off one of your jokes against them? It was therefore decided that Wolf, Cole and company would plan a hoax on the Dreadnought to undermine its security, highlighting the inconsistency of its iconic status and mock the Royal Navy and British militarism by gaining access to the ship and pretending to be the Emperor of Abyssinia and his entourage. Abyssinia, by the way, is now known as Ethiopia and was one of two African countries, the other was Liberia, never to be colonised. Using theatrical costume designed by Willie Clarkson and his staff, the group disguised themselves once again, using skin-darkening body paint, fake beards, turbans, eastern robes and jewellery, and set off towards Dreadnought, currently moored in Weymouth. From start to finish, this hoax was clearly thought through. Adrian Stephen, Wolfe's brother, sent a telegram to the commander-in-chief of vessels defending Britain, stating that Prince Macallan of Abyssinia and Sweet arrive at 4.20 today in Weymouth. He wishes to see Dreadnought. Kindly arrange, meet them on arrival. It was signed off by Harding of the Foreign Office. In the telegram, Stephen misspelt Abyssinia with two Bs instead of one. The first clue, this wasn't exactly a legitimate request. At Paddington Station, Cole, who playing the role of Herbert Colmondeley, a member of the Foreign Office and not blacked up, demanded to the station master that the Royal Cohort needed a private train to Weymouth. Instead, they were given a private VIP carriage. Upon arrival at the Dreadnought, the fake royals were given the red carpet treatment with a military salute, a band and African flags hoisted to the masthead. Apparently, the Navy used flags of Zanzibar instead of Abyssinia, not knowing the difference. Following a tour of the vessel by the captain and the commander, the entourage sat down to eat. The group had been warned earlier in the day that they couldn't eat or drink in case their disguises fell off, so they declined the food on grounds that they hadn't been prepared using specific religious requirements. Reports suggest members of the group, including Wolf, spoke using a mix of Latin and Greek, which they proposed was Swahili. These were educated, well-read people who'd have studied and known these classic languages, but according to eyewitnesses, it was gibberish. Incidentally, Wolfe's cousin, Admiral William Wordsworth Fisher, was a member of staff on the Dreadnought and present during the hoax. When he failed to recognize his two cousins, the hoax was considered a success. Similar to the Zanzibar hoax five years prior, Cole gave an interview within the next few days to the Daily Mail, which was accompanied by a portrait of the group. The studio shot was probably not taken on the day of the hoax, most likely before it. You can clearly recognize Virginia Woolf as she's smaller in the frame than the men she's surrounded by. The sepia tone and out-of-focus photograph shows these are clearly not men of African descent. It's strangely sinister in its composition and execution. Around a century later, in 2010, a letter was found by an antique dealer in rare books and manuscripts. Written by Cole to a friend the day after the hoax, Cole writes, quote, It was glorious, shrinkingly funny. I nearly howled when introducing the four princes to the admiral and then to the captain, for I made their names up on the train, but I forgot which was which and introduced them under various names, but it did not matter.
He goes on to say, I was so amused being just myself in a tall hat. I had no disguise whatever and talked in an ordinary friendly way to everyone. The others talked nonsense. We had all learned some Swahili. I said they were jolly savages, but I didn't understand much of what they said. Are you amused? I am. Yesterday was a day worth the living. It makes for a tough read. Following the revelation of the hoax, the Navy became an object of ridicule. Obviously embarrassed and humiliated by the prank, they immediately reviewed their security measures and changed the ceremonial protocol. Like with the hoax before, the group hadn't broken any laws, so they couldn't be prosecuted. But the Navy did seek revenge. With the exception of Virginia, some of the men were apparently abducted and caned by junior naval officers. It's questionable why Virginia took part in the hoax, and without being alive to apologise for it or defend her actions, we can only speculate her motivation. On one hand, Wolfe and the group set up the British Navy, which safeguards the empire by revealing the vulnerability of its borders, infiltrating its prized possession, a ship built for protection and war, poking fun at the pomp and ceremony so closely associated with national pride. But in the execution of the prank, their construction of black masculinity feeds into the familiar racist trope of othering black bodies, particularly black men, as a threat. Their performance as jolly savages from white, wealthy, privileged people highlighted the assumption of being able to transgress race, and in Virginia's case, sex, through the perspective of imperialism. Their production of blackness relied heavily on Western stereotypes that reinforced racial divides and narratives. Wolfe did face consequences. In her 1940 speech, she says, quote, Many of our friends and relations were furious. They said we'd degraded our family name and were a disgrace to the parents who'd born us. End quote. But is this enough? Perhaps it's right then that Camden Council are considering removing her bust or applying a QR code next to the statue so that you can scan it with your phone and read more about these inconsistencies. Virginia Woolf has arguably written some of the most groundbreaking feminist and experimental novels of the 20th century. She is heralded for her queerness and being outspoken about depression. Let's not forget, she drowned herself in 1941 because of her poor mental health. Her input into the arts will not and cannot go unrecognized. This is why another bronze statue of Wolf was unveiled in November 2022 next to the river at Richmond-upon-Thames, a place the author lived for 10 years. It's doubtful if Virginia will ever be fully cancelled. She is protected by her whiteness, her wealth and her words. Her legacy remains, but so do the facts, and these cannot be forgotten. Blackface wasn't appropriate at any point in history, regardless of the perpetrator. If we can separate the words from the writer, the personal from the professional, then maybe Virginia can escape this cancellation. But this is only a matter of opinion. This episode was written by Rhiannon Styles. This is a Broccoli production. 